Hello and welcome to episode 56 of Booze, Booms and Busts. This episode is coming to you a little later than normal, as sadly there was a technical error on the Australian side uh, last week. However, we are back this week again. It's the middle of the week, which makes things uh, a little different, which is quite quite interesting, actually. It's interesting to record these during the middle of the week. But as ever, I am Boa Shoshan, and I'm joined today by Sam Volkering. Sam, how are you getting on? Good. Thank you. Sorry to everyone about the lateness of this episode. Basically, what happened was that last uh, Friday, when we do record these, usually, um, my computer screen decided to shit itself and fail. These things uh, happen. Thereby rendering use of said computer quite difficult. Um, nonetheless, managed to get myself a new screen. So um, that's good. I've got a 55-inch Samsung uh QLED now is my computer screen. So right. I can see Boaz in such high resolution that um, it's almost disturbing, actually. <laughs> yeah, that's that's probably got to be me. That's probably bigger than my actual face. Larger than life. <laughs> it is. It is. Actually, that's, that's a good point. When it's like when we do team meetings and stuff at, uh, at work and I have it on like speaker display, the size of the head is bigger than the head in real life, which is... Um, weird but anyway I'm, one all good. The... I'm all good <laughs> oh good good it, remind, it reminds me there when you talk about you know the massive heads and everything you know uh what was it was it blade runner 2047 and the there was that hollywood adaptation of ghost in the shell where they always show uh like asian metropolises displaying holograms of huge faces and huge people uh, and it just seems to be a recurring theme that you find in sci-fi ideas of the future is that you're going to see enormous faces in the street. It's well, or, or just 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 enormous, just enormous beings. Full stop. I mean, like mm. it's like the uh, in the Marvel universe where they've got is it the Celestials that like uh, is it the Collector lives inside the head. Uh, the head is like a planet itself of a of a of a former Celestial. It's it was that big. Its head has become a planet. Which, to be fair, you could say about probably a lot of people on social media as well. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I'm waiting for when Samsung comes out, you know, starts pulling out all the stops and going for uh, something absolutely ridiculous. Um, they, they just call it Samsung the Celestial. It is funny how like 3D, remember when 3D movies were a thing, you know, after Avatar came out and now they're just not, like, <laughs> what, nobody, yeah. nobody is interested anymore. Yeah, I, I think now, what did I go? I did go to the movies actually and watch a movie in 3D because uh, you, you you pick up the glasses and then you chuck them in a little 3D glasses bin on your way out. I was trying to remember what it was. How recently? No, it was a couple of years ago now, um, but it obviously had such an impact. But you, like that was the thing, right? The, the, the cinema times were like in 2D or like yeah, Dolby digital and, and then 3D showings as well. And um, yeah, that, that didn't really last long. It's like 3D TVs, right? I used to have an LG 3D TV, came with the glasses and everything. I think I watched a single program yeah. in 3D. Really? Did you watch anything that was in 3D? Did you get any movies? I don't think so. Actually, to be honest, when I was so when I was replacing my screen uh, on Friday, um, so I've got this one. I got this one from a. It's one of those shops that sells recon. Well, not reconditioned, but like uh, graded products, right? So. You know, it's, you know, maybe got a couple of scratches on the bezel or, you know, there might be a mark on the screen, but when this, when the screen's on, you don't see it. Right. 
um, or it doesn't come with the stand. So for instance, the one I got didn't come, doesn't come with the original stand. And there are a couple of marks on the screen, which looking at the screen now, you cannot see it all, but it was like a quarter of the retail price. Um, and uh, one of the options, one of the ones I was considering was a 3D TV. And the only reason it was graded and selling at a discount was because it didn't have the 3D glasses that came with the TV. I was pretty <laughs> close to getting that one. Cause I was like, who the fuck watches anything in 3D on a TV? No one. Yeah, big time. So it's like it's like this feature that they had on TVs that then never came into never existence. Happened. It's a bit like HD. Do you remember HDD DVDs? Do you remember that period when it was like, Ooh. is Blu-ray going to become the standard for high-def DVDs or is it going to yes. be HD DVDs? Yeah, that was the Xbox PS3. That was that was a sort of a one of the proxy wars in the yeah. Xbox PS3 conflict because Xbox yeah. didn't have Blu-ray. But you know what? Yeah. I was so I, I had this little thread with my brother earlier today. I'll see if I can pull up pull up the message. He might shoot me in the face if he actually ever hears this. But we were talking about it earlier today. Uh, long story short, there's a lot more to the, to this, which is way too funny uh, and probably not necessarily needed to be repeated on a public broadcast but anyway so we remember we were talking about hd dvds and and blu-rays because we remember that we had this porno <laughs> that was a hd dvd porno and it was supposed to be like all these interactive angles you could like choose different you know it was super it was super high tech stuff and we're like oh yeah hd dvd would be sick oh it's gonna be the new standard it's you know all this interactivity and shit and it's like Yikes. nah it just never took off never couldn't find a hd dvd player for the life of you Sony obviously inbuilt Blu-ray into PlayStation, just shat all over. I think Panasonic was the driver of HD DVDs or something like that, or Philips. Um, right. You know, one of those companies, and it just never took off. It's like somewhere in storage in the Volkring household is an old, probably like mint condition HD DVD porno uh, from like <laughs> from like the early two thousands or something. I Which genuinely probably have a collector's edition one day. I had no. Yeah, I had no, I'd never thought of that before. Where you would, I mean, was there a market then for like Blu ray pornography? Uh, well, so yeah, it was, there was kind of, there was a bit of both, really. Um, and it, and it, there were, it was, it was genuinely the kind of like, it was like the Betamax VHS kind of, uh, uh was, you know, what, what was going to come out on top. Like Betamax was better technology, but, um, you can't beat something that scales faster and is cheaper. Um, and ultimately, that's kind of what what Blu-ray was able to do. That's weird. I can, you know, I can imagine, I can imagine some a lot of like venture capitalists uh, thinking that you know we just need to get ahead uh, of the Blu-ray or slash HD, whichever side they favored, and just betting you know huge amounts of capital on pornography, either in Blu-ray or HDD format, and just getting absolutely wrecked. Oh man, I just, porno aside, I there would have been a shit ton of of money. Like I can imagine, Panasonic would have absolutely smashed in, like just to create the hardware to to play HD DVDs as well. They would have they would have lost. I mean, I'd love to know the figures. I should should try and look it up. How much money was lost when HD DVD lost the war to Blu-ray? Yeah, big time, big time. I, I mean, it, you still get people with Blu-rays now. I mean, you still buy Blu-rays. Uh, it's still a fairly large, large yeah. market that I can see for what what little still remains of people who buy movies on on Blu-ray on like you know physical format. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, ultimately, it's, it's all just gone streaming, hasn't it? So I'm looking around my office. I'm sure I've got some Blu-ray DVDs around here somewhere as well. But again, like, 
<laughs> so I think was I no that's right I had I, I was gonna watch the Lord of the Rings trilogies on on Blu-ray um, and then I realized I didn't have a Blu-ray player in the house um, and so I borrowed one from my father-in-law and then I went to watch and I was gonna go watch it on that and then I realized that um, I could just watch them in HD from Sky Cinema because they were on the Sky Cinema channels and so it was kind of a redundant exercise <laughs> really. But did you get all the bonus added features? I'm sure they shoved on the Blu-ray version. You know what? That's a good point. No. So that's, that is, I mean, that's the good, that was the good thing about Blu-ray and maybe that'll be the thing that sort of keeps the medium vaguely alive for collectors in the future is that, you know, the, you know, the, the comments, the, the ability to select like the commentary from the director or like you say, the, um, you know, the bonus features that are always available. Yeah, yeah, you never see that. You never see that on Netflix or any of the streaming services. When you go, when you're watching a series or something, it'll never show you like, you know, behind the scenes or interviews with the cast or, you know, uh, or as you say, you know, director's commentary. To be fair, Amazon have almost sort of gone down that. So you know how like when you're watching something on Amazon, you can use the X-ray function where like, yes, you you hit the button and it tells you like the actors, and then you can kind of jump into that and see all about them and stuff. That's kind of cool. I quite enjoy that. Yeah, same, same. It and to be fair, been... with Netflix as well, when they did the interactive movies like Bandersnatch, where that, that, go... that yeah, that was a gimmick though. It was a what gimmick. Was it, but yeah, I get you. I get you. I, I like mean, the. Um... That was cool. It was. It was interesting. Um, but yeah, I mean, like ultimately, if you want to play a video game, you just play a video game. Like the Bandersnatch <laughs> is just a video game that you just play with a Netflix controller. If you re- if you're really into like innovative, immersive storytelling, you just play like Heavy Rain on PS3 or. Do you know what it was? And you may be a bit, you may be too young for this, but but Bandersnatch was basically like a modern day Phantasmagoria. I don't know if you've ever heard about that video. Game. I've heard of it, but never, never. That was like one of the first, like like. It wasn't, you know, I say cinema quality. Back then, it felt like it was cinema quality um, video and, and visuals where it was basically, you know, you choose, you work your way around. Pretty pretty gory, pretty full-on, scary kind of uh, game. But that was like, that, I mean, that was, that was decades ago now. And it feels like it's just the same shit, but just more high def. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you can go even, you can go further beyond that. Maybe, maybe this is even before your time, Sam. I think there are uh, there are those old adventure novel books that you'd get. I think maybe printed. I'm guessing the 70s, but maybe in the 60s as well. Where it'd be, you know, you get some. For example, I remember what one for Biggles, the old uh, uh, written by W. Johns, the grand, uh, you know, grand adventures of the pilot Biggles, and this goes through, you know, the First World War, or there's even before the First World War, and all the way through to like the 1960s and stuff. Uh, and he has all these ad- adventures, and I think there's 120 or something odd um, books of these. But they did also do someone else wrote like uh, you know some adventure books that go along with it, and it's so it puts you in the role of either Biggles and his and his crew, and it's like what do you want to do? And uh, if you pick A, B, C, or D, then it says go to this page of the book, and then that will give you the next thing yep. where so- the next thing happens, and you have another decision to make, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, and it feels like the the Bandersnatch thing was just like the same thing, that where, yeah. I mean, and it was all that made it done as a loop. I'm trying to I'm trying to find it uh, online. I can't I can't remember who the publisher was. But when I was a kid, there were there was this whole selection, whole uh, whole selection and, and and a series of books. Well, hang on, I may, I may have found them here. 
Um, and they were they were basically kids' books, but choose your own adventure with the, uh, the same thing, right? You yeah, right. as you get to page three, you then get to choose what you want to go to and do next. Um, and it takes you to like page thirty, right, or, or back yeah. to page yeah, yeah. eighteen and shit like that. And because I remember one, there was a really great one that I just loved, and it was um, it was something to do with the Giants Causeway, um, which I've never been to, but I really want to go to. I think that was literally just called Choose Your Own Adventure. Yes, no, I thought I think that I know what you mean. Yeah, and um, there was a whole series. I've, I've found a bunch online in uh, vintage. Oh God, am I? I'm, I'm vintage now from before two thousand. Fuck, um, yeah. on yeah. Etsy. <laughs> I found vintage Choose Your Own Adventure on Etsy. God, yeah, yeah, I feel old now. <laughs> classic, classic. Oh, but anyway, Sam, what are you drinking this week? Let's start. Uh, I mean, yeah, uh, so um, yeah. I'm I'm actually waiting on a on a beer delivery. So it's kind of a I've I've got one left from my previous delivery, but my second I I have to um have to <laughs> like it's a like it's a chore. I have to open uh, one of our quantitative ease uh, beers with the the second generation of it. But the first one that I'm drinking is so I, I may get shot through the screen uh, by you or from through, you know, through the channels of interwebs by our listeners, but I'm drinking a beer called lucky saint, which is an unfiltered lager. I almost don't want to read out what the ABV is, but I, 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 I oh. selected it on the premise of I've never had a beer so weak in alcohol content before. I just had to find out what it was like. Mate. The curiosity has killed the cat. Mate. No, it's not killed the cat. It's left the cat completely unarmed. <laughs> uh, well, so what I mean, is it? It is, is midweek drinking. So it probably if, if I was ever going to have it, now is the episode to do it. It's 0.5%. Oh, yikes. Yikes. Well, you know, it could be okay. No, I'm sure it'll be perfectly okay. It's not going to be bad. Like, it's just going to taste like water. Oh, we'll see. I can't. I can't even. Oh, yeah. From like, oh, Lucky Saint. Is it a Lucky Saint Brewery? Hang on. Lucky Saint. Lucky Saint. Well, here we let me describe it. Lucky Saint is born of Bavarian spring water. Good start. Uh, Pilsner malt. I mean, it's saying all the right things. Uh, Hallertau hops. Again, I mean, it's on fire from the description. And our single use yeast. Uh, discover biscuity malts and a smooth citrus hop finish. I mean, if if they did not printed the ABV on it, um, you know, would maybe I'd never know. I'm just saying. Oh well, that how does it taste? Come on. Um, well, I would say that it's it. I don't know about biscuity, but it definitely tastes of Bavarian spring water. So um, yeah, that that's as bad as much as I can say about it so far. Mm. <laughs> Oh well, oh well, you know these things happen. Uh, you know, I kind of feel—I can't remember—was it? Were they? Was it? Were they two and a half percent? Those beers I was drinking in Stockholm when I was there last year. Oh, that's you know, those, right. Yeah, yeah, I think they were like two and a half. So, you know, Man, that all, feels like decades ago. Yeah, it does. It does. I think a while back as well, Kit Kat, when he was on the yeah. podcast, he drank a small beer. That's right. I think I think that was one point five percent. That one. Um, so, you know, we do allow these. We do allow these on booze, booms, and bust. It doesn't all have to be the heavy stuff. Um, I will admit, if, if, I was, if, I, if I was driving somewhere, I would be pretty happy to drink these, to be honest. How many of them, though? <laughs> I, could probably, I could probably have a fucking hundred of these. <laughs> and it would, still wouldn't touch the sides. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's probably good for day drinking. Maybe you should just have them in the morning with breakfast. 
because it does taste like a beer. Mm. I mean, it's not. I've, I've I've had put it this way. I've had worse beers with alcohol content. Yeah. All right. Yeah, that's fair enough. Yeah, it's fair enough. As long as it tastes good, I guess. Because there are, are, of course, those beers that have high alcohol content and just taste absolutely disgusting. Oh, Speaking yeah. of which, Sam, I actually had the worst beer I have ever had in my entire life this what? weekend. I didn't what? think it could be done. I oh, actually tell, thought I'd... Tell us more! I thought I'd had the worst. <laughs> I really had thought I'd had, like, you know, already had the worst from all of, you know, from previous years of, of drinking beer. Uh, but no, this was... I. This is one of those very rare beers that I can't actually finish. Like even when I normally when I bought a beer and it's like, you know, um, you know, it doesn't taste good, but you got to see it through uh, because, you know, it's better to not waste alcohol. But oh, my Lord. Wow. This was I can finish this. Absolutely disgusting. I'm just going to find. Set the scene. Yeah. Okay. so. Right. So I actually I'd already been drinking for quite a long time by this point. So I'd met a friend. Uh, you know, I'm I'm currently here in London. Uh, I've uh, I'm no I'm no longer, uh, you know, further south. I've been here for pretty much a week now, and I was just catching up with some old friends. So uh, earlier in the afternoon, I'd met a friend in. Let's see, where were we? We were. I think we started. We wanted, went to an art gallery in Mayfair, and we just went to a pub nearby, sort of close as you can get to Soho from from Mayfair. Uh, and just had a few pints there. Very nice. It was Sam Smith's. Um, yeah, it was the Jon Snow, actually. Uh, yeah, I'm sure plenty of Game of Thrones people love going there. But yeah, it was a Sam Smith. I think this is the Saturday. And uh, we have a few pints there. Uh, then I then go meet uh, another mate of mine at a whiskey bar in Soho called, uh, is it the Milroy? Milroy's of Soho. I hadn't been there before. Had a few whiskeys there. Uh, very nice indeed. And uh, then carry on. And we don't really know which which uh which bar to go to next but uh there's a brew dog uh and it's a brew dog i've been to before i was like all right yeah fine we'll go there it doesn't look too busy so yeah. we'll, we'll go there so it's, it's, i think i think there are two brew dogs in soho it's the one on yeah. a corner that's how i sort of remember them uh so just this one on the corner and i go in there uh and i'm pretty turned at this point so you know i'm not really looking too you know i'm not gonna you know i'm not taking too much time for selecting a beer and i you know stupidly forget the number one rule you know rule number one when you enter a brew dog is you don't drink brew dog beer you only drink the guest beers because yeah. brew dog beer is generally bad relative to their guest beers so i don't actually see that there is actually a separate like list it's not all uh, there's this all the you know they're all lit up above the bar yeah and it's the bit around the corner which actually has all the guest beers as our own separate uh, list so uh, i'm just looking at the uh, <laughs> i'm just looking at the the main ones and there's one that says like london's favorite right and it i'm trying to remember that's a bold which, claim in any yeah. in any brewery that's a bold claim it is it is so anyway i just i just pick this thing and uh you know the it becomes even more extreme like when you realize like this is definitely this there it is not possible that this could be london's favorite by any measure i mean i know in soho people are you know you know they're pretty open to to new things and that but you know, there is no way in hell that this is actually a popular beer. I'm trying to find out actually what it is. I'm just looking at the so tap list because, you know, I, this is like a suppressed memory. I'd actually forgotten about this until the podcast. Yep, found it. Done. All right. The worst beer I've ever had in my life. And this thing would be AAA 
minus, okay, this is absolutely suitable only for toilet cleaner, is Jackalope King, which is a 6.5% ABV sour. And yeah, this is maybe, you know, maybe I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. Benefit of the doubt. Maybe this was just a really bad cask or something. Maybe... <laughs> maybe it's normally nice and just something went wrong maybe people weren't cleaning the taps then i don't know i don't know but a pint of jackalope king which i bought was the worst beer i've ever had in my life uh it brought back uh you know strange memories of uh i, I used to follow a vegan diet when i was a teenager and i had this vegan protein powder that was oh. absolutely disgusting, as you would imagine. And it had, it had this weird chemical taste to it. And Jackalope King is the closest thing I can think of that it tasted like. And it was just absolutely terrible. So yeah, supposedly London's favorite Jackalope King is triple A, definitely a triple A rated beer. It, I, I just had a look online and it says it's a Scottish sour ale fermented with blueberries and gorse flowers aged in red wine barrels. Yeah, that it didn't taste like, like any of those nice things. <laughs> it sounds like one of those one of those things where someone's like, like, let's try and make a new beer. What can we see within the garden? <laughs> some blueberries. Oh, some gorse flowers. Oh, what do you know? There's an old red wine barrel. Let's mix it up in that. Um, they don't sound like that doesn't sound Damn, like yeah. fun. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, as as I say, couldn't finish it. Uh, gave it to my friend, so we swapped. I was like, please, mate, I'll just have your one. And his one was way, way higher ABV. He didn't really realize how he'd gone for a quite, uh, quite heavy one. Um, and he couldn't finish it either because uh, he realized just how bad it was. He actually oh, wow. t- he texted me the next day saying, you know, when I woke up in the morning, like I just smelt of that beer. He didn't like spill it on himself or anything either. Uh, but he did, you know, you could just smell it everywhere, and it was just absolutely, absolutely terrible. So, you know, if anyone's watching this and just wants to have a, a literally dog shit beer, then uh, Jackalope <laughs> King is is your man. That is the one. That is the one. Um, but today for this episode, I am drinking a Rap Scallion. This is by Northern Monk, uh, which we've had plenty of before. It's an orange zest IPA. I do like. Uh, I do find it interesting when people manage to get oranges into a. Uh, into a into a nice IPA, five p five point seven percent, and cool label as well. You know, sort of a um, sort of a farmyard, uh, a golden farmyard kind of aesthetic, and uh, yeah, with the big northern monk hooded guy on the front, with the description more than appealing as the uh, <laughs> as the uh, as description for it. But yeah, very nice indeed. It's probably not the best of the IPAs that, but loads of people have tried to do uh, mix orange juice. And orange uh, sort of orange zest with IPA, so it's not the best, but it, you know it goes down fine. This was actually bought from the uh, from the Waitrose beside the American Embassy. Uh, <laughs> it's a very interesting uh, area around the American Embassy in Vauxhall. Yeah. Uh, we can maybe talk about that actually because it's um, yeah, it's pretty wild. But for the Raps Scallion, I would give this because I've caned it already. I'll give this probably uh, an A plus because this is uh, yeah. Actually, no, I'll be general. I'll say B minus, B minus. Generous, generous. <laughs> but yeah. so um, the American Embassy, uh, it is. It's a it's a weird vibe around that place, isn't it? Yeah, very. Well, I mean, the building itself is is spectacular. So it's this imagine yeah. in this enormous glass cube um, that is uh, you know put up, you know, it's propped up, 
and it is surrounded you know the entire thing is surrounded by a pond it's got a water feature at the front but i'm presuming the uh, you know surrounded by this pond because it's sort of uh, reflecting how america is uh, over the pond from us and uh, you know it's this enormous glass building huge i mean as as embassies go this thing is bloody enormous very modern and it, i think it came in in the mid 2000s when that thing was uh, erected maybe i'm wrong maybe it's mid 2010s anyway Vauxhall is a very interesting area so you know, the American embassy is just down the road from MI6. In fact, it's not down the road at all. I mean, it's pretty much around the corner. Uh, they're both on the river. So they're both, uh, you know, very, very scenic areas. But Vauxhall, uh, it, I pretty much, I've been here a few times over the last three years. And just every time I come here, it's just more and more and more developed. The amount of construction I've seen here in such a concentrated area is nuts. Like they're just, they were, it's like they're watering skyscrapers and they're just growing like weeds. They're going, you know, every time I've, I've been here, well, you know, with like, you know, a three month gap or something, there's another skyscraper either being erected or, you know, that's just opened or something. There are so many of them. Uh, and it, it's almost like one of these sort of Chinese mega cities where they're just skyscrapers everywhere and they just crop up really, really, really fast. And I, I've wondered why Vauxhall, but then when you think about it, it's right beside the American embassy. Uh, and it's right beside MI6, you, you know, you, you makes you wonder what what's sort of going on there. It's interesting as well, because despite all of this construction, it's actually really hard to find an Airbnb here. And not even if you're willing to pay a lot of money as well. Airbnbs, despite all of this property, uh, you know, are not are not forthcoming. So you wonder who is occupying all of this all of this real estate. I know uh, MI6, there is a lot of accommodation that you can get at cheap rates through MI6 if you work for MI6 around the area. And I wonder if maybe that's one of the reasons why it's hard to find places to actually live around here. But uh, yeah, I don't know. But Vauxhall is a very interesting area, I must say. I've always wondered, like every time I go into London, and you're right, there's always some sort of mega construction taking place whether it be office blocks and office um, uh, uh, real estate or, or whether it's residential apartments, things like that. I always, I'm always fascinated at who occupies these things. It seems like there's far too much office space for, for companies and people and businesses to occupy, especially now. I, you would think that constructing a skyscraper is probably the worst idea you could think of, but yet they still seem to be going up, like you say, like weeds. Yeah, yeah, I think, and a lot of it is real, is um, you know residential as well. So it's not all offices. Um, and I must say, you know, Vauxhall, you know, it, when the first time I came here a few years back, you know, it did seem pretty crummy. I mean, it seemed like a bit of a shithole, really. Um, but it's in the there's there's clearly just so much money that's going onto here that's it's becoming um, it's really maturing quite fast. And it is, of course, right by right by the river. I do always uh, think that the best form mode of London transport, right, if you have to use an Oyster card, uh, you should definitely just go by the Thames Clipper instead oh, yeah. of, you know, taking a tube. And, you know, Vauxhall is right there. So, uh, you know, you want to go to Greenwich or you want to want to head city side. Uh, you should, you could commute via the uh, via the Thames Clipper, which is actually officially called an Uber boat now. I think it's Uber who who run the whole thing. Is it really? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're just called Uber boats. <laughs> I wonder if they'll be as profitable. Oh, sorry, not profitable as uh, all the other Uber Uber Eats or just Uber. Well, you know, you know what they say, mate. You know the the second what is it? <laughs> you know there are two time. What was it? The set the 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 second best time you have when you own a boat. It's like the day you buy it and the day you sell it. <laughs> so, uh, so presumably, yeah. 
we're not we we cannot go down that uh the route of talking about boats again we've we've all, we dedicated an episode to boats not too yeah, long ago did, yeah one yeah, of yeah. our finest episodes according to some of our viewers um, oh really right yeah but when we're discussing boat life and uh, the boat life to be the boat life um, yeah hashtag boat well, life. yeah because i actually went uh, uh on canary wharf the other day on the little go boats you get there Aye. um you know, there's little plastic things that you can rent. I think it's, um, so I think it's 65 pounds for an hour and then like 130 pounds for two hours. Uh, and you can just take one of these little plastic electric boats and, uh, and you go and explore Canary Wharf. And uh, obviously you're, you're, you know, you can't go everywhere. There are all these places that are restricted and whatever, but it's a, it's a great day to spend a way of spending an afternoon if you've got a, you know, a few friends and whatever. And um, yeah, did that. And it's uh, Canary Wharf was pretty empty. I mean, there were, while there were plenty of people yeah. milling around. <laughs> Big ghost were, town. Yeah. Well, I mean, there, there are people, it's interesting. Canary Wharf is more alive on land than when it went than pre-Wuflu era. So there are more people in Canary Wharf during the weekends than there were pre-Wuflu. However, there are less objects in the wharf itself, it seems, than pre-Wuflu. Uh, so there are like Canary Wharf at the weekend is now a lot livelier than it used to be. Right. Uh, but if you're going around on the water, there's like no one else out there apart from other go boats and these weird jacuzzi things. <laughs> Hang um, on, wait, whoa, whoa, sorry, what weird jacuzzi things? Yeah, yeah, I'm not sure about those things. So it's effectively a, a jacuzzi that floats, and um, so you're at pretty, Canary you're, Wharf. Yes. Could you imagine it, sitting in a jacuzzi at Canary Wharf? Yes. Uh, so you're sitting in a jacuzzi in Canary Wharf, uh, and you can sort of control it around. It's got a little motor to push it around the, the wharf. Uh, thing is, you're very, very close to the water. So pretty much the level of the jacuzzi water is going to be roughly the same level as the actual water of the wharf that you're floating in. Holy so in, if you're in a go-boat, even, the, even there's just a little plastic go-boat, if you wanted to, you could effectively just push them underwater. Um, which was kind of tempting, considering the you know the they the seemed the people inside these boats seem pretty obnoxious, I must admit. Uh, but yeah, I'm I'm not so keen on on the jacuzzi boats. Probably going to stick with the go boats. That's uh, I, so yeah, wow. This is, I've, I've done a quick Google search, and um, uh, not going to lie, it looks really weird. They're like they're like little sunken tugboats, but it's a yeah. jacuzzi on the inside, like you say. Yeah. yeah. And it's like the Flying Dutchman or something. Yeah. You, so I could see this being, and I imagine there would this would exist in somewhere like the canals of Amsterdam, where it would be fucking awesome. But at Canary Wharf, mm. oh, probably not so much, right? Weird vibe. Yeah, weird vibe. Why? Yeah, uh, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not sold on the idea. <laughs> I have seen. I've seen similar things on telly before, but I didn't know you could do it at Canary Wharf. I was like, oh, that sounds like it'd be a cool, fun idea. And then in, in sort of. <laughs> thinking about it more it's like mm, maybe not i wonder how the i wonder if like like there's so many you get so many of these sorts of businesses that pop up i wonder how many of them like succeed long term like do you think in another five years we'll be talking about the highly successful hot tub boats that uh, get around canary wharf or do you reckon this is sort of one of those things where people will just it'll just die off a slow and painful death okay well i'll counter your question with a question right uh, what if <laughs> the only way you can spend your time off inside a locked down global economy is uh, is is by is by you know you're you're going to strange sort of um, strange 
peculiarities in order to have a good time. So I imagine a lot of the people that are doing these things, like going on jacuzzis in Canary Wharf, probably doing it because for lack of a better thing to do with their free time, it's like, hmm, well, what can we do? Well, it's not like we can go travel anywhere. And, you know, uh, you know maybe, the, maybe loads of places are booked up now because they have capacity constraints. So why don't we, uh, why don't we just go on a jacuzzi in Canary Wharf? Well, what could possibly go wrong? You know, when, uh, when, when you think of what could succeed and what couldn't, I think uh, so much of that has just been skewed by the fact that you can't, people can't go abroad at the moment uh, and mm. people are still finding it hard to, you know, get back to normal. Yeah, the, the rise of the staycation, I think they're calling it, which is really just vacationing in your own country, which is really just called a holiday, uh, whether you like it or not. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's, it's, it's mm. weird, right? It's like you feel like you, you, these sorts of novelty type uh, experiences uh, are probably the way out of a period that we've gone through in the last sort of two years as, as people do look to do more new and interesting and weird things within their own country. And so maybe, you know, there is a, there is a, a market for something like a hot tub boat on, uh, on Canary Wharf, but I, well, I, think- I mean, there's certainly people there that's doing it. Um, I just wonder when you talk about, we're talking about sort of the way out of lockdown. I wonder if we are actually on the way out of lockdown. Um, wow. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, I wish I could, feel, I wish I were so optimistic, but I think, I think they're going to find another way of fucking this up again, Sam. <laughs> it doesn't, doesn't look great, does it? Mm. It doesn't look great. I wonder if, I mean, so, I mean, I can't help but stop looking at uh, There are these, what I, I, mean, I call them, everyone calls them COVID stocks, you know, the stocks that get hammered uh, when we're in lockdown. Uh, and you just, every, you know, the, the contrarian in me says, you know, these are still the ones that, uh, to, to look at investors should be looking at chucking into their portfolio. But then at the same time, it's like, oh, the political risk of going into more lockdowns has smashed the shit out of some of these industries. I was talking to a mate about it the other day because uh, he's in um, he's in the mining sector because uh, I'd messaged him about the, um, the coup in Guinea, uh, which had pushed um, bauxite, bauxite prices through the roof, which... Uh, is necessary for the production of aluminium or if you're American aluminum and uh, mm-hmm. so the aluminum market was uh, on fire because of this coup in Guinea which produces a whole shitload of bauxite um, and, and we were just saying that it's just so mental and then shit like the, the Chinese stocks and the um, you know at Evergrande looking at like it's basically going to default um, and that, you know, whether or not the China will bail them out, which they have done with other companies, but it doesn't look like they're going to do here. And then they shut down the whole fucking tech industry basically overnight. The political risk uh, that we face everywhere right now is I, I, I hazard to think of a more tumultuous time for investors where they have to consider geopolitical risk as a factor more than anything else in their investment decisions. Yeah, I wonder... I do wonder if this is kind of a return, a return to the norm in that, uh, you know, back in the Cold War and before the Cold War and before the Second World War, uh, you know, this was actually kind of a given. Uh, so everyone had to, you know, had to, yeah. had to factor this in. It's only in the last 30 years or so that uh, we've all been insulated from these kind of geopolitical pressures because, uh, you know, 
uh, sort of the the Western liberalism and you know the uh, the power of only one sort of a unipolar unipolar world all around the United States uh, managed to rule supreme and you know all of the all of these nasty things like politics we didn't really need to think about that if you're an investor we well, just need to look at cash flow yeah I'd, I'd, I'd counter that with I mean I, I do agree that it could be a return to norm but I think what the significant difference is now is that there are so many more people engaged with the market and that are invested uh, that have access and control to the market that have to consider these things like back then you know I would hazard to guess that they're probably I don't know the exact numbers but the proportion of individual investors you know buying and selling stocks probably wasn't anywhere near what it is today um, most people maybe if they were invested maybe invested in fund managers or something that took all those things into consideration perhaps um, but no I, I I wouldn't think it's on the level that that we look at today, you know, whether it be people are able to like, even, you know, we, we talk about retail investors through like Robin Hood and, and, and uh, investment platforms like that. And, you know, meme stock trading and shit like that, whether the, whether everyone that does that likes it or not, the, the, the risks of the, you know, different political uh, policy and, and changes of government and fucking military coups and all that sort of shit, they have to be seriously factored into consideration or if not, you know, people learning about it now early in their stage of, of, of investing. Um, yeah. Maybe you're right. Maybe it's a return to norm, but I think there are way, way, way more people invested in the market that probably aren't considering these factors in, in the way that they should. Well, more participation, uh, if it, you know, more participation should be good in making the market more efficient so that we have yeah. more people casting a vote on the status quo of reality. However, uh, you know, I would actually counter that point you made there, Sam, with the people parking their money with fund managers. I think that's much, much, much more prevalent today uh, with how, how many people are simply relying on, you know, your average Vanguard or your average uh, black well, ETFs, right? Or yeah, just through the, the ETF complex, but even all of the, all the retail brokers, you know, they'll offer you their, you know, uh, you know, FTSE plus thing where it's like a smart beta strategy. <laughs> uh, we've just picked these stocks from the FTSE that we think are going to be good. And people just say yes to the sort of this financial authority that's promising them this. Uh, so I'm not sure. So yeah, the problem I think is that while we do have a lot more participation, we also have a lot more sort of um, passive participation, which that's is, true. Uh, which is a lot different. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, ultimately everybody who, uh, who, who doesn't factor in these things is going to get punished on a long enough time frame. So, uh, and hopefully they won't make the same mistake again. So the market should become a bit smarter about it. Hmm. You'd think so, but yeah, yeah, the market's never really that efficient or that smart. <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't know. It depends. I think, I think in time, in times past they are, but when, uh, you know, when the value of money is, uh, it, 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 when the value of money itself is something that can be, disputed and uh, argued over it it becomes very hard to to really understand what the value of things priced in that money are so i think back under under gold standard i think markets were mu were much more efficient but that's uh i think that's probably a different uh a different conversation but sam uh, i uh, on on topic of hard money actually uh we, we've got a you know there is a big elephant in the room here which is who pulled the rug on el salvador I was wondering when that was going to come into the conversation. I've tried to steer away from it as much as possible, show that we can talk about other things. Um, 
Well, mate, yeah, but we, you know, we definitely can. I mean, come on, our, uh, we've definitely done that in other episodes. But considering no. how topical it is, I mean, someone rugged El Salvador yesterday. I mean, no we've got to, we've got to, you know, take a look at it. Did they though? I mean, come on, they only bought what, like four or five hundred Bitcoin. I mean, I'm, I, I, there are whales that hold more individual whales that hold more than El Salvador. I wouldn't, I don't know if I'd exactly call it a rug pull yeah and well, anyway everyone's just like oh it's an imf conspiracy and the imf shorted them just to prove a point and even i you know jokingly texted that the, the j pal pump group um you know fed fed go brrr, um, and you know mini jan was like ruffling the whole way um you know i i still i still hazard to think that they give a shit about the crypto markets that they talk about them to really just to get views on their social media pages. But I think that like the IMF would probably be, is probably more concerned about getting a uh, digital representation of the uh, SDR um, basket uh, as, as basically their replacement of the Euro. I think that's probably more in their, in their wheelhouse and in their sites than worrying too much about what fucking, Naib's doing with Bitcoin. Well, I mean, uh, well, expand on that a bit for me, Sam, then. Because uh, from my understanding, the SDR is not something that can be uh, sort of participated in by anyone other uh, than either supranational or uh, or national organizations. Um, so, I mean, why would it need to be digital? Well, I think they've got, they've seen, they seem to have got their knickers in a knot um, about putting the, a, a currency uh, in the European Union into a some sort of digitized nature, which is really a control, which we've we've spoken about before as a surveillance and control mechanism. There's there's seems to be a, a reasonable school of thought that the euro is 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 a failure of a currency uh, for all intents and purposes because you can't you really can't use it. it really it's really fucked a lot of countries that have needed to manage their own economy as they probably should have by not being a part of the uh, EU and the Euro by managing their own central bank. So obviously the European central bank has a lot of control about how the Euro is issued, but I I've heard that there's, there's interest in creating a basket of currencies or a basket of, of money effectively that could be represented by the SDR digitizing that and using that effectively as sort of the backstop to a digitized European currency that has a little bit more programmable flexibility, I suppose, than what the Euro has ever had. I mean, that could be just kind of monetary conspiracy theories, but at the same time, it's an interesting idea when you take a, uh, you know, a basket rather than just the ECB manipulated Euro and try and digitize that. But how would that work? Because I mean, the SDR is is a blend of global currencies. Yeah. Uh, so I don't see how we, how you would want to replace the euro with that when it's the currencies it's backed by. The value of the SDR is dependent on other nations' economies. Yes. Yeah, so I think the idea was that they rebalance it uh, using predominantly uh, the European currencies, so that it almost becomes a quasi euro. SDR, but the other global currencies are used to, I guess, somehow work with the way they trade or something. I don't know, to be honest, but 
like half the European currencies are the euro anyway. Yeah, exactly. But the problem is, is that it doesn't work for a lot of those countries. I mean, like, you know, arguably if, if countries like Spain and Greece hadn't have joined the euro, um, you know, maybe they'd be better off. Maybe they would be, maybe they would have been better off under a US dollar standard. I think the, the sort of <laughs> yeah. core idea behind it was that a global basket of currencies uh, works better than a smaller sort of single-use currency for multiple countries, if that sort of makes sense. So like many countries, many, many currencies for many countries as opposed to one currency for many countries. Yeah, yeah, I'm... I'm... It's interesting. Interesting idea. I mean, it comes back to El Salvador in a lot of ways in that, you know, a lot of, a lot of the reasons why uh, people in El Salvador who don't like Bitcoin are very anti it is because they had such a bad, um, a bad experience of when the El Salvador adopted the dollar mm. uh, rather than, uh, and it wasn't, you know, they didn't get rid of their, uh, their own, uh, what was it? I think it's the Cologne. Uh, that was their currency. They didn't get rid of it, but they they introduced dollarization to it, and they really hated that experience, uh, which is why a lot of people just see Bitcoin as a sort of foreign uh, monetary force that, uh, that should be resisted the same way uh, we in the same way they wish they had resisted the dollar. Um, I mean, there are plenty of countries out there who uh, oh, do just fine on a on a dollar standard. That's for sure. Um, you know, it's one of those ones. What is it? Turks and Caicos, that you know, holiday retreat, yeah. which is actually a British you know possession. Uh, but which uses the U.S. dollar as its main currency. So you know, you you bring out pound sterling over there, and even though it's a British colony, effectively, uh, I mean, no one recognizes it. <laughs> you know, they'll be like, "What is that? Are those euros or something?" Um, and but you know, Turks and Caicos gets on fine using using the U.S. dollar. Um, I don't know about the whole SDR stuff. I think the uh, I think the IMF. You know, uh, while they're certainly opposed to uh, El Salvador using Bitcoin, that's for sure. Um, I don't know about it. I don't see why the SDR needs to be digitized. Um, other, well, I mean, maybe, maybe, who knows? Who knows? Who knows? But well, if uh, the, I mean, if people ask often ask the question, what comes if the US dollar isn't a global reserve currency anymore? And I think there's a school of thought that thinks that perhaps a global basket of currencies could be the global reserve currency. And so digitizing that effectively makes it transportable and transferable across the globe with greater mm -hmm. ease. But it would still contain lots of US dollars. In fact, US dollar would still be the majority constituent within that basket. So it makes you wonder why, well, what was the point of the whole exercise? If the majority of this is going to be dollar uh, and we're trying to get away from the dollar, what was the, you know, what was the point? Yeah, which is which would be part of why they would look they would wanted to rebalance away from the US dollar. It gives them it gives them more flexibility to move the balance weights from currencies that aren't working as they should. Right. I guess. I mean, um, yeah, yeah, it depends. When you've got the still, it all depends on how you weight how you weight the baskets. Yeah. Because when currencies are complete, uh, you know, they're um, zero sum. They're well, paper currency is completely zero sum. When you're trading them and whatever, you know, one currency can't go up without other currencies going down. Uh, like if you're you're taking okay, you really don't like the US dollar. Well, are you going to like the euro? I mean, are you really going to like sterling? Are you really going to like the renminbi or or the yen? Right. Um, yeah, I guess it depends on what what it is what it is that you're after. Because uh, as far as I know, the IMFs probably, even though they own loads of gold, they're they're probably not going to be incorporating gold into that SDR basket anytime soon. No, they wouldn't. But they may they may incorporate other assets. I mean, you know, ultimately, I think it doesn't really matter what currency that that 
is used, whether it's a, a, the US dollar or renminbi or fucking a basket of them, um, ultimately they it all seems to just boil down to that one central premise of financial and economic control. Yeah. Um, which they are, it seems that there's a lack of control. Um, it seems like there's, you know, great factions of control, which are looking to centralize that more within their own economies. So it's, I mean, it's hard to say how, you know, the, the global currency system, the global financial system kind of moves forward over the next 10, 20 years. But I think it continues to give great credence to to proper hard money like gold and like Bitcoin. Yeah, there's certainly no shortage of people in the IMF who uh, like the idea of controlling things, that's for sure. But Sam, I mean, going back to the El Salvador thing, uh, I, I do wonder, and I'll be, uh, I'll be speaking to John Butler about this, actually, because I find this uh, an interesting idea. You know, was the was Bitcoin dumping on the same day? I uh, you know the El Salvador uh, finally you know makes it legal tender, etc. Was that a um, was that just a massive case of buy the rumor, sell the news, right? So everybody got really excited about the fact that this was coming up, so everyone bought it, and then when that actually happened, nothing really happened, so everyone sold it. Or could this be a a case of uh, somebody you know actually actually wanting to kind of uh, uh, you know a malicious actor wanting to wanting to punish those El Salvadorans or just to make it look like a really bad idea. I mean, obviously it's terrible PR for El Salvador, right? Or, uh, or the, or the, or the big man in charge who says, you know, I'm going to make this legal tender and then suddenly it dumps. So obviously it's not like El Salvador owned a huge amount of Bitcoin by any measure, but just in terms of uh, making the PR look terrible. Uh, yeah. I mean, whoever, whoever, whoever did sell a lot of Bitcoin uh, the other day has made a, has done a class job of it, whether it's incidental or not. Um, yeah, I mean, look, it's like what, 10, 12% off from where it was a day ago. Mate, it's um, a, it, when you consider how, well, people, it's not ideal for the currency, the press, don't get me wrong. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, 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 no. But when you consider the amount of press a move like that get, that uh, a move like that makes, I mean, pretty much all of the, uh, all of the, uh, the, the major news outlets will be making a big deal about it. Cause it's a nice round number, isn't it? It's, uh, it's two digits. That's 10%. Yeah, yeah which means say, like the thirty the thirty dollars worth that the an El Salvadorian got uh, for downloading the app or whatever is you know it's twenty seven dollars worth. Um, yeah, yeah, oh sure. Well, in El Salvador, that's actually a lot of money, but you know, I mean, I, it is I, a lot of money. Don't get me wrong. But, I think um, I saw you know, but no, to use it. To uh, be fair, it, it's every good look. Put it this way: I, I think the more likely outcome as to what happened was that it was a uh, yeah, like you say, buy the rumor, sell the news. And it was just somebody that was like, right, a whole bunch of people are getting super excited and probably just doing little bits and buying up Bitcoin, um, which, you know, people do. And they decided to dump a shitload of it in the market. A whole bunch of liquidations took place. I think it was another $3 billion worth of liquid liquidations right. across all crypto. Big chunk of it, obviously, Bitcoin. is more of a clearing uh, it was more of a clear out than a than a massive kind of you know 40 percent dump that we've seen yeah, before. Yeah, yeah, it's certainly um, no big crash. But then yeah, at the same time, I mean, the, the, the timing is like, yeah, okay, there's something sus about the timing. But th- what a perfect what a perfect time to if you were looking to offload a couple of hundred mil of Bitcoin when you know that there's um you know you know there's there's a, a captive audience of buyers that are ready to go on that specific day. Yeah. 
Yeah, Sam, though, I yeah, I, I definitely err on the side that it's by the rumor seldom news, but I'm certainly open to the idea that somebody might be trying to do something, something different. Because as you say, it's not a massive dump, right? So whoever, you know, the massive crashes, those are the ones where it's harder for me to think that there could be a single person or a, yeah. or a group of individuals, right? But as you say, it's just a small dump by crypto standards. Um, and, you know, I was just looking around on Twitter today and, uh, you know, and, you know, you know perfect timing, right? Some, uh, some, you know, some socialist posting, you know, you just post like the 24 hour chart. It's like, yeah, this is why I love money. You know, I own a hundred dollars and then, uh, and then the next day I have $90. Right. So if this was like a plot to make Bitcoin look like a terrible means of exchange, I mean, it's pretty much, you've got, you've got the idiots saying, oh, look, here we are. It was a hundred dollars. Now it's $90 kind of thing, you know? Yeah. <laughs> The crypto markets, uh, yeah. The, the thing is, is that the, the great thing about a decentralized network uh, like crypto, like Bitcoin, is that no one ever really knows what's going on. I mean, at least when it comes to the global financial system, you know, you know who the players are that that are shifting things most of the time. Um, with crypto, you just you just don't know. There's so and. and so many, if you want to talk about conspiracy theories and rumors, um, I mean, it is the place to find the greatest of them all. Um, I think you just got to almost treat some of this stuff like a meme and just laugh it off half the time. Yeah, well, certainly no no lack of mirth on the, within the Bitcoin community. Uh, Sam, actually, uh, you know, while we were... Um, uh, while we were off the you know, last week, I was having a bit of fun on uh, Artflow, the uh, the app which then creates, uh, which you which is supposedly some AI algorithm which just creates a, a face based on whatever description you give of it. So uh, if you look on our, our Twitter feed, booze, booms, bust, you know, you will see a couple of those where uh, you know uh, it was just our names and we just saw what uh, you know what what the faces were, and uh, I must say. Yeah, they uh, they were quite interesting. It's quite an interesting image of uh, Sam Volkering and, uh, and what did you what was what did you say though? What was the description that you gave? No, no, no. That was the thing. I, or the the description was just Boaz Shoshan, right? Or just Sam Volkering. Ah, I didn't right. do any more. However, I have done a little bit more uh, recently because it is quite interesting seeing the uh, seeing what it comes up with, and um, <laughs> so uh, you know, so some people just. You know, type in stuff like, uh, uh, let's see. Uh, I'm looking at one that says Cyberpunk Geralt, and it's like a gray haired fox kind of looking guy. <laughs> yeah, like the ones here where it's like happy blonde boy or happy wife or uh, a kind and goofy Russian young adult with light brown hair and a playful smile oil painting. Mm. Very specific stuff. Uh, so I put in one, which is woman who presses control P at the Tether Foundation. And uh, it's actually come up with a pretty decent portrait. I can believe that this is the woman who presses control P at the Tether Foundation. I, I'll post it on the, on the, uh, I'll post it on the Twitter feed. Um, but I did notice uh, the other day how Tether had minted a billion dollars worth of USDT. Uh, and did seem like oh, yeah. great timing. Yeah. Well, I mean, if someone's going to save the crypto market, it's going to be Tether, right? Yeah, it will be the money printer. <laughs> yeah, it'll be the woman who presses Control P. I mean, that's the uh, that's the way it goes. Did you put? Did you put? Uh, you should put the woman who presses Control P at the Fed. <laughs> I'll do that actually. Or yeah, I mean, which one do you think is going to be more attractive? Um, oh, Tether, the Tether one for sure. 
all right okay drop b at right i'll take ages for this to come up but yeah uh, i mean i'm just trying to do one now and it says due to site traffic estimated time is 721 minutes yeah we'll get there we'll get there definitely but sam what's what's your second beer you're on the moment that's 12 hours man fuck that um well so yeah like i said my uh, i'm waiting on a on a beer delivery of um god how many did i order i think i ordered something something obscene like some 30 odd beers um to come but they haven't come yet so my second is the quantitative ease so it would do actually it'd be unfair to rate what we have arguably said is one of the greatest beers of all time yeah yeah we can't yeah obviously we've got a big conflict of interest here uh so yeah we shall refrain from that um the second one i've got here is a siren uh, this is called siren lumina which i've not had before i think it must be outside one of their core range or maybe it's one that they've added to it. Uh, Siren, it's got a, uh, you know, it's very, yeah, it's very striking label. A big blue one, 4.2% session IPA. Uh, Lumina is our shining light, glowing with juicy tropical fruit notes and flashes of delicate citrus highlights. Uh, yeah, and the label is, uh, it's got a, you know, in Siren fashion, it's got a what I guess is a siren at the front, except uh, her head, you know, there's a big shining light and it's like the moon is kind of exploding out of it. Uh, yeah, very striking label. Uh, it tastes pretty good. It tastes pretty good. Um, yeah, can't rate it. Well, can't rate the, the quantitative ease, of course, but uh, for Siren Illumina, I think I will give it a, I think I'll be generous again. I'll give it a B minus like I did with the other one. Yeah, nice. Oh, and I should I should probably rate the Lucky Saint, um, considering that is one uh, that we can rate, and it's not one of ours. Um, now, look, I know it's got, you know you copped a little bit early on for it, not point five percent, but that's actually not a bad beer, really for a for a beer with six tenths of fuck all alcohol content. Um, I, I didn't think that was quite too bad, you know. If you uh, if it had alcohol content, it could have been even better. I'd still give this an A plus. I'm I'm I, which I think is I think that's a very good rating for what is effectively a non-alcoholic beer. Mm. Uh, I just wonder if it's fair when uh, you know it doesn't have the it doesn't have the. I mean, it, the thing is, you know, all of these breweries distilleries are they're they're striving to make alcohol taste good, right? And when you don't have the alcohol, it must make it a lot easier, you know. I think it makes it harder trying to make a good tasting beer. Well, it, well, so it, there's still some alcohol in it. So therefore it technically classifies as a beer and not something like water. Um, so I would argue it's harder to make a good tasting beer with very little alcohol than it is to taste, to make a good tasting beer with more of it. Hmm. Uh, I, yeah, I, I'm sorry. I, I'm definitely on the contrary there. Definitely <laughs> on the contrary. I mean, you do, I, what, what is hard is hard is when people try to create the same taste. So they try to create an, a, a non-alcoholic equivalent of something that already exists. So instead of trying to create a non-alcoholic beer from scratch, they are create, they are trying to make a zero alcohol content beer that is the same as say Guinness or something. Uh, and obviously that's very difficult. Yes, but yeah, I, I think if you're just making beer that doesn't have boo, then yeah, you 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 can make a booze from scratch, without requiring, you know, the you know without needing to worry about how the alcohol is going to taste good. I think that'll be a, that's a hot that's a, you know, that's an easier an easier quest. 
Mm, I'd like to, I wonder if we hear from our, uh, from our listeners that are actual brewers, if uh, what, what their take on it is, is, is a 0.5% unfiltered lager, is it really a beer or is it a pretend beer? And is it challenging to make something like that? Or is it really a piece of piss that anyone can do, but no one does it because not that many people want to drink a 0.5% beer. Interesting to know what the actual brewers that listen to our show think of that. <laughs> yeah, let, let's ask the experts. Certainly, certainly. Ask the experts. But Sam, uh, we have gone on for a little while on this uh, on this fine Wednesday of all days. We don't normally do these on Wednesdays. Uh, maybe we'll be back in on Friday. Who knows? Who knows? Uh, but in terms of uh, closing remarks for this episode, anything else you'd like to cover? Anything else you'd like to say? Um, I don't think so. I don't think so. Not at this point. I mean, buy the dip. <laughs> <laughs> Well, of course, we can't give investment advice on the show, but maybe... Hey, hey didn't say what dip. Yeah, it could have been hummus or something. Could have been any dip. Could have been hummus at, at, at your local Waitrose. Ah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, maybe... Uh, yeah, and, I, I'm one, Hey, this one was supposed one. to be 0.5%. What the fuck? <laughs> yeah, mate, maybe they rugged you. Maybe this hey, is rug- not actually 0.5%. Do you know what? Could you imagine? Oh, I suppose that probably breaches some sort of advertising or, or labeling standards, but just called the rug, a rugged, a rugged beer, in it, and it says it's 0.5%, but it's really 5 of 55% or something. It's like that. That sounds rugged. great. That sounds really good. If you get one that's like surreptitious, you know, it doesn't, it's not obviously really high ABV. You know, you get those really good beers where, you know, you can't tell it's you know, over 10% or something. That would be, yeah, that would be it. That would be the rug. Yeah. Or yeah, it would just be called rugged. Just and rugged. The, and you tell them what the word actually means after they finished it. Well, while that might be rugged, I'm, I'm about to, I think, have a, uh, a dead cat because my cat is deciding to chew the power cords behind my computer. So if I, uh, ah. if I drop out for any reason, then it's because my cat has just fried itself. Well, there you have it, folks. I think that's a good place to uh, to tie up this episode before uh, Sam's cat gets frazzled. Uh, I do hope you've enjoyed this. Of course, apologies for our last episode not being on time. Uh, you know, these things do happen when uh, all your tech packs up. Uh, and hopefully uh, we'll be back again shortly with the next episode. That's all for the moment. Hope you enjoyed it and we'll see you in the next one.